Hello, friends. Coffee and Deer Show coming right at you. Hunting season editions. I think no matter where you are in the country right now, you're doing some hunting. We got the doctor in the house. Good to see you there, Mike. I uh, gotta say, these shows. I always love doing the show, but whenever you're in the middle of hunting season, it just kind of gives you that extra, a uh, little bit of juice, if you will, to uh, just you know bring it to the best of our ability here. Well, it's the time of year. It's the excitement level that you can smell it in the air. You can feel it in those cool mornings. And I think it just brings out the best in me. And it sounds like it brings out the best in you as well. Yeah, it's like preparing. And I think I've mentioned on here before about coaching football and whatnot. You have all these practices and preparation. And while you got to bring it for those, there's nothing like Friday night lights, right? So that's that's when you really bring it. And it feels like for us, it's Friday night lights now uh, for deer season. So Exciting time. Absolutely. Uh, our sponsor for today is Vortex Optics, great partner of the National Deer Association. Actually, many, they support many conservation organizations, which we certainly appreciate. And I'm excited to say I have a new Vortex scope, a Crossfire 2. It's a 4, uh, four by 12 by 40, or 4 to 12 by 40 for my air gun, Mike, because I like squirrel hunting and I got an air gun last year. And the scope that came with it was less than desirable. So I went uh, to see my friends at Vortex put in an order and I see that it's out for delivery today. And so I'm taking my, my squirrel hunting very seriously. I have Vortex optics on uh, hunting rifles as well. And I have been just 100% pleased with, with their products. They also have, people may not realize this, go to vortexoptics.com. They have some really cool apparel as well. Everything from socks to shirts and sweatshirts, which is something I never really thought of Vortex for, uh, but I have some of that stuff, and I can tell you it is really impressive. Uh, so again, rifle scopes, they have red dots, binoculars, rangefinders, spotting scopes, tripods, you name it. Go visit our friends at Vortex Optics. We're going to be talking with Brian Burhans today. He is the uh, executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, so we have a state agency director here. I think it's a really good conversation. So we'll have Brian on here in a few minutes. Uh, I want to remind everybody though, we still are running the promo for memberships. If you're listening to this and you're not already an NDA member, go sign up, use the code podcast. Doesn't matter if it's lowercase or uppercase and you'll get $5 off. So instead of 35 bucks, it'll be 30. And I want to mention too, the quality whitetails magazine has, has been hitting mailboxes over the last week or so. And if you sign up to become a member, I, I'm almost certain we can still get you the latest issue of the magazine. And if I'm wrong with on that, and Lindsay, if you're listening to this and cringing, uh, you send me a stack and I'll make sure that I send these things out if I'm not um, giving good information here. But there's just so much great stuff in this issue. And even though I get to see some of it, at least before it goes out the door, I get really excited when it hits my mailbox. Um, there are things, it's articles in this one, Daylight Delight. Uh, is an excellent article um, talking about from suburban non-hunters to rural hunters and gatherers. There's it, We just cover a lot of ground in this one. Uh, we talk about some of the back 40 work that we're doing. As, as you'll recall, that was a property donated to us last year by Meat Eater. We've done a field of fork out there. Uh, so some good information on that. Uh, and then also a secret weapon for post-rut bucks. And we're going to talk about red oaks. There's just, there's just something in there for everybody. And Mike, as you know, I texted you the other day. I said, Hey, did you get your magazine yet? Cause I didn't get mine yet. And I, it almost felt like, you know, you really need to know somebody to get it early. 
<laughs> and I know somebody and I think ours came on the same day, but with that being said, it, it's here, it's packed full of information. I have several articles dog-eared that I have to work my way through. So I'm excited to, you know, just kind of get in that mode. I mean, right now I love consuming that information at this time of year, as we said before, it's, it's in the air and I, I, it's like, I have extra energy and it all revolves around being outside chasing deer, sitting in a stand, preparing, whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm in it right now neck deep and happy to be there. I want to point out too, and I always talk about this. I talk about our newsletter and you can subscribe to that. So let's say you're someone that's on the fence about whether or not you want to join NDA. Now, I don't know why you'd ever be on the fence. I mean, it's about, it's one of the top few things you could do in your life is to become a member of the National Deer Association. Um, I'm a little biased, obviously, but check out our newsletter. If you're not doing that, that's free. That comes to your inbox on Thursday mornings. And uh, our buddy, Lindsey Thomas, who we, he was our first guest on the podcast. He's our chief communications officer here at NDA, um, did a really good article talking about cold fronts and that really what gets the, the best thing about cold fronts probably is that it gets hunters excited, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle in the deer woods. Like some might have you believe. And so he sent me to that. He sent me that article prior to putting it out there just to get my take on it because he knows it'll probably ruffle some feathers. Uh, but I thought it was spot on. And it was, uh, I read it and, and just sort of chuckled to myself a bunch of times because even myself, I feel the temperature out there and I said, oh, they're going to be moving today. And the reality is deer live outside all the time. And, and obviously major fluctuations in temperature, if it's super hot or super cold, can, can make, make them move or not. But it's a really thought-provoking uh, thought and fun article that I'm going to be anxious to see what people's response to it is. And that's just one of many articles in our newsletter. And you could subscribe to that for free at National Deer Association or DeerAssociation.com, excuse me. So, Mike, I don't know if you got your newsletter yet and read that, but that's one you got to check out. No, actually, I did read that one. And as you said, it it's thought-provoking and you really have to think about your hunting experiences. And, and, and I have to admit, it took me recalling good hunting and bad hunting around specific temperature changes because I personally was remembering all the good ones. And you forget about the ones where you think it's going to be the perfect day and you go out there and you're just watching squirrels run around. So um, I, I like Lindsay. I, I like how he writes because it makes me think. And it's easy for us to kind of fall into that. Oh, how, how would you want to be called? I mean, I don't want to say being led falsely by just what you hear, but you, you accept these things and I don't want to call them urban legends as if they're true, but until you really think back and remember your experiences, it, it's, it makes you actually kind of recalibrate yourself. And it, I think it, to me, at least it makes me better moving forward. I think it's like most things in people's lives. You want to, well, you always remember fondly the things that make you happy. <laughs> and um, so you're going to remember those great hunts where you went out and it was cold and it was perfect. And maybe you shot your best buck or whatever, but um, you don't remember, or don't want to remember the times where you went out and said, oh, today's the day and absolutely nothing happens. And where I'm going with this, I'm bringing this all the way back around. It's been a, it's been a uh, pretty far orbit here, but bringing it back around to quality whitetails. 
And that in addition to all the great information in that magazine, it's backed by science. We don't put conjecture in there. Now, I, I understand not everything. Um, let's see, how do I put, put it this way? Um, there is there's science and then there's also personal experience and what works for you and whatnot. And I'm not asking anybody to ever change that. I'm just saying that you won't ever find anything in quality whitetails that is not uh, that where science has not been considered. And so it's pretty accurate, pretty good stuff, even if it's not what you want to hear. <laughs> you know, maybe you don't want to hear the facts about chronic wasting disease, but they're in there and they're backed by science. And maybe you don't want to hear that just because it's a cold front doesn't mean it's going to really impact your deer movement a lot and moon phases and all these things. And so uh, anyway, I think it's a good um, it's a good place to go for accurate information based by science and also, I think, pretty entertaining. So. Speaking of entertaining, Mike, you and I, we're in, we're in the process of helping form a new NDA branch here in, it'd be the West Central Pennsylvania branch. And so that's been fun. We had a nice little get together over the weekend. We got uh, guys and gals excited about getting rolling here and helping to put the NDA mission on the ground. So um, I'm looking forward to where we're headed with that. It's fun to be participating at this branch level. And I think we got a good group to go forward with. I agree. It was, it was a very good first meeting and some good topics were discussed and I like the mix of individuals. It wasn't just, um, you know, people with all the same mindset, everyone had different skills, everyone had different talents. And I think when you're trying to build anything from the ground up at, at the grassroots level, you need different individuals that have different skill sets and different talents to, to come together and, and actually make this something that we will be proud of. Yeah, we get, we've had a question, even one of our Ask NDA Anything questions, which we're going to get to here in a second, about starting a branch. And so if you've been an NDA member and you're thinking, well, I'd like to do more, help get the mission on the ground, I'll reiterate to contact our buddy Mike Edwards, who handles that for us here, Mike at DeerAssociation.com, and he'll be happy to help you. So let's jump into the Ask NDA Anything questions. And we've got a few. We didn't get quite as many as last week, so I'll just take this moment to remind everybody, you can ask us anything, and we give away prizes if you ask a good question, and we've sent some hats already out the door, so we've had some winners, and um, yeah, let's just jump into them here. This one comes from, first one comes from Kevin. He doesn't tell us where he's from, so I'll remind you folks, tell us, tell us what state you're from at least, and we can see where we're getting all the questions from, but he says, I'd be interested to hear more about any management options that exist for EHD, so epizootic hemorrhagic disease, which that's a mouthful to say. EHD, not CWD, very different. Uh, deer that show EHD symptoms. Are there any considerations for limiting the spread of EHD? Are there long-term implications for a herd that has EHD? Perhaps it's beneficial to a population since NDA says immunity can possibly be passed temporarily to fawns. Uh, finally, he says, should a deer with EHD be dispatched? pending game warden approval. Okay, a lot to unpack there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just speaking to a couple fellas from New Jersey last night. I was at a, an event with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership in DC. Um, I'm playing a little hurt here today, actually, because I didn't get home till about one in the morning, but uh, uh, slugging it out. But they were asking me about EHD because they had an outbreak in their area. And so um, Here's the deal. So EHD is not like CWD and that is it is not 100% fatal. Uh, it seems to be mostly fatal. And unfortunately for a lot of 
uh, deer managers, uh, managers, it's particularly hard on older age class bucks. But there is the possibility that a deer can survive EHD. And if it does, yes, those antibodies can help that deer survive. Um, and, and I'm pleased that he mentions uh, about referencing NDA for some information about immunity being passed to fawns. So thank you for doing that. Um, you know, should a deer with EHD be dispatched? I, I would say probably if you call a game warden, they're probably they're not going to let you do it. And I would say, let that up to them. And also you don't know that that deer could be suffering from any number of diseases. And so you don't want to, you don't necessarily see a sick deer and say, well, he has EHD. And so always contact your state wildlife agency and they will um, take it from there. In terms of management for EHD, I really wish I could say, hey, here are the five things you can do to limit EHD. But um, probably the best thing you could do if it's even possible is to try to limit the midge activity, the biting midges that, uh, that help transmit the disease. So if you have standing water, that's not useful to you, keep those areas drained and just try to limit the places where those midges can breed. Um, but there is, unfortunately, there's just not a ton that can be done, but deer can survive it. Like we said, it's not a, it's not a high percentage and sometimes they suffer other things after surviving it. But it's certainly this time of year is when we, well, start late summer into this time of year, we start hearing about it. And the best thing that can happen for all of us is that we get a frost and some cold weather here coming up. So that will help deal with it. So great question, though. And I appreciate that, Kevin, very much. All right. Next question. Another another more serious one. And this one is this one is kind of a, a deep question. This is Rick from Arizona. He wants to know what NDA's position is on trail cameras. Uh, because uh, as he points out in his email to us, Arizona earlier this year banned the use of trail cameras, which may, some of you may be listening to this and saying, what? Like, why in the world would they do that? They must just hate hunters. Uh, it is complicated. And so let me first answer Rick's question. Rick, we don't have a formal position on trail cameras. We like them. We think it's a great way for people to not only just hunters, but a lot of people who aren't hunters view wildlife using game cameras. And so we support the use of them. We don't get into the whole whether or not uh, the ones that sell you the images, send you the images over a cell network or ethical or whatnot. Uh, we like those too, because it gives you uh, just real-time data, what's going on. I mean, I do, I, I can only imagine the percentage of people that uh, take a deer moments after seeing it cross their cell camera is probably really low, but again, we're not, we're not going to get into that. Uh, just in general though, we, we support the use of trail cameras because they're, they provide, you can use them for science. You can use them for just general education and you can certainly use them for hunting. And it is probably one of the most innovative tools in recent decades that has really increased people's activity in the deer woods and learning about deer and other critters. So we support them. Um, as far as Arizona goes, it is not as simple as you might think. And so they've got unique situation there where they have, it's very arid, obviously. They do a lot of things with generating artificial water sources uh, for animals that uh, they go to and rely on these sources, frankly, just for survival. And so what's been happening there is you could have a situation where you have 50 trail cameras set up on one of these watering sources and multiple cameras set up on the same tree. Uh, there have been conflicts um, between people out there in these situations. They're disturbing wildlife that need to get to that water. And so that is where that is coming from. And so 
without, we don't have the time to get into all the details here. I can tell you that Scott Bestial wrote a really good article on this that describes the situation uh, in Field and Stream. So if you just uh, look that article up, the article is called a Field and Stream Interview, Why the Arizona Game Commissioner Thinks Banning Trail Cameras is Okay. Uh, so it's an interesting read. But for, for most of us, uh, we don't, you know, a trail camera ban just wouldn't make sense. I can tell you that one of our board members, John Anoni, he's the founder of Camp Compass, where he's taking inner city youth and getting them exposed to the outdoors. I just had the opportunity this week to speak with his class where um, they use trail cameras to, as John calls it, look at the evidence and all the evidence that trail cameras bring, everything from the date and the weather and the temperature to the, the animals themselves. And these kids are getting exposed to nature by the use of these trail cameras. And I just, I can't think of anything much better than that. So anyway, yeah, we support them. The Arizona situation is very unique, but check it out. And finally, and this is going to be our winner, by the way, a question from Lisa from South Carolina just simply says, what is the go-to snack for you and the doctor when you're out there on the beer stand? And so, Mike, I'm going to let you take it first. All right. Well, I have three standard things that are always in my pack. And I don't know if it's superstition or otherwise, but it's Kit Kat candy bars. It is Snyder's of Hanover makes these little square pretzel wafers. They're called butter snaps. They have this strong butter flavor. And the third, and the reason that I don't drink coffee, even though this isn't a snack, I still list it as things that I need to have with me is Mountain Dew. Those three things are in my pack. Now, granted, is there protein in there? That's in form of a sandwich probably, but <laughs> those are the first three things I grab and I better have adequate supply to get me through. If it's a long day rut hunt, they're in my pack and I'm enjoying the heck out of them. Well, that's... I don't know about the Mountain Dew part, but I, I know, I know that you are a Mountain Dew addict and, um, that's like you said, you don't drink the coffee, but you do drink that. Uh, hey, I'm not going to lie. I like Mountain Dew too. But, uh, for me, uh, number one, I want to say I've retired from all day sits. <laughs> I did that a couple of years ago because it's just too hard and I don't enjoy it. Um, but I still will have longer sits and I, and I do try to take some food with me in case, let's say you have that situation where it's the rut. And here comes the buck you want to shoot at. And he beds down with a doe 50 yards away. You're not going to climb out of that tree, right? So you have to be prepared if that happens. My go-to has always been a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or two or three. <laughs> There's just something about a PB&J on stand. They're good in any temperature. And so that has always been my go-to. And then I'll mix in. I always like to have some trail mix and mix in some other things. And so um that's my go-to lisa thank you for your question uh if you listen to the next show send us your address and i will get you an nda hat reminder everybody send us your ask nda anything questions to nick at deerassociation.com and we do appreciate them as i mentioned earlier brian burhans is our guest today he is the executive director of the pennsylvania game commission and so don't hear director of a game commission and say, oh, this one's going to be a boring discussion because it's actually the opposite of that. Brian is, this is a fun discussion. He's quite entertaining. Um, he is probably the most, one of the most optimistic people in charge of a wildlife management agency that I've ever met. 
and he's got a great sense of humor and we're going to hit him right off the bat with why he thinks turkeys are better than deer. And so we have fun with this one, sit back, give it a listen. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get to the interview with Brian. I want to welcome to the coffee and deer show. Mr. Brian Burhands. He is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. He's also one of my bosses on the National Deer Association Board of Directors. Uh, Brian has a really impressive conservation career, and uh, we'll have him fill in the gaps here, but uh, working with organizations like the National Wild Turkey Federation, he led the American Chestnut Foundation, and now he finds himself leading a state wildlife agency in one of, uh, I would say, arguably one of the toughest states in the country to have that job. So Brian, appreciate you being on, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? You're muted. So excited to be on here today, Nick, and I can't believe I'm in the house with the doctor after listening to so many episodes. <laughs> and it's, it's a really thrill to be here today. Um, you know, I, I I'm a hunter. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, down in southeastern Pennsylvania, near Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, was educated here at Penn State. Glad to see we're ranked number six. Looking forward to this weekend. Um, graduate school down at University of Maryland uh, at the uh, uh, Frostburg State University. So, so, you know, I'm born and bred here in Pennsylvania. You know, I, I've spent most of my career um, you know, throughout the Southeast United States, but really excited to be back here at home. And the Pennsylvania Game Commission has been that place I've always wanted to be ever since I can remember as a child. And I am so humbled and honored to be here as part of the agency. Well, I want to, I want to jump right into the controversy. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here, but I have a very controversial question to ask you now. This is the coffee and beer show, but I'm going to out you and tell the whole world that, uh, you like turkeys more than deer. So I have to ask you why that is. Why are you so misguided? Well, you know, every argument starts and ends in Pennsylvania dealing with white-tailed deer. And let's face it, the wild turkey is rainbows and unicorns. It brings happiness <laughs> to all. And, you know, we had a chance to hunt together this spring. And I have a, I'm starting to little, get a little bit of a feeling that the turkeys are actually using deer as terroristic ways to protect themselves and i think there's something going on there i really do you know we've had many instances in over that couple of days of deer that were purposely blocking us from achieving our goal of getting close to a gobbler so i think there's something going on there i've not read about this in any of the scientific literature that i've come across i think this may be a new scientific discovery that may warrant further research well i, I want to come back to that point and, and talk about our spring hunt for a second. But, you know, you say that turkeys are like rainbows and unicorns, but I got to tell you, the majority of my hunting related profanity comes during spring turkey season. And the doctor who's over there laughing, I mean, he's laughing now, but we had some like moments where we wanted to cry. We wanted to get into fights. Uh, and so I don't know, doctor, what do you, what do you think? Um, what do you think about this? Well, and I think it might go back to the fact that uh, in regards to, I think that's why we like deer because deer do not give us the fits or the situations that I guess cause or create good podcast fodder for us to, to actually kind of mill over. But I will say that 
our turkey seasons, those stories are epic. Yeah. They will humble you every single time, you know, and I, truth be told, I obviously love deer and grew up as a bow hunter. Uh, in fact, I, my first several deer were, I took with a bow when I was a kid and I didn't even get to hunt in the gun season until I was probably 18 or 19 years old because I had so much success in the bow season and loved deer hunting. Um, but when I got where I grew up in Montgomery County at that time, there were no turkeys and I didn't even see my first turkey until I was probably 19 years old. And you know, it's one of those things too, you know, you ask the question why I like turkey so much. It's like, I think anything else in life, when you learn more about something, you really, that's where you start to develop a passion for something. You know, I've got many activities that I do that I'm very passionate about and turkey hunting is just one of them. Um, but, you know, I've spent most of my career working on turkeys and actually did my master's degree working, doing research on turkeys in Western Virginia. And, you know, it's like anything else, the more you learn about the world around you, the more interesting it gets. Well, I got to say that spring turkey hunt, I don't know if it was just because I was around you for so many days in a row, or if you had me up too late and my mind wasn't working straight. But by the third day, I was starting to buy into the fact that deer and turkeys are working together because I swear every time we thought we had something going, here come the deer and Brian would be like, look at them. Here they come. They're coming right now. They're coming to protect the turkeys. And so for a point there, I think you started to have me believing in this. It, it may be true because remember, we saw those gobblers go to roost that one evening up through the field. We were up there first thing the next morning on the ridge. It was just beautiful, clear morning waiting for goblin. And that deer started snorting and stomping at least 15 minutes before the light and continued long after when the birds would have come down and started gobbling and we never heard a thing. And I get, I think that deer's working for the turkeys. Well, this makes me feel better because there's no way it could have had anything to do with our ability. At least that's <laughs> what the doctor and I, we have all kinds of excuses, man. I'll tell you, that's amazing. We've ever even gotten a turkey. Hey, real quick, one more thing on turkeys. You shot a white turkey. I want you to tell that story real quick. Yeah, I was hunting a, a friend of mine's place down in North Carolina, in Western North Carolina. And I was hunting actually with a biology with National Wild Turkey Federation. And I was actually doing the call and I was behind him and had a couple gobblers really hammering down below us and trying to work the birds. And all of a sudden, right behind me, I heard multiple birds gobble. I mean, within 50 yards. And I knew if I didn't quickly turn around, you know, they were going to bust me and I, I had to take a chance. I turned around real fast, got set up and the birds walked out from some, uh, some uh, laurel and out popped a, you know, nice looking two-year-old bird. And then right behind him was this white turkey. And then out behind him was a normal colored turkey and they're all the same size. And I'm like, first thing, yes, that went through my mind was where, what pen did this bird just escape from? Long story short, short, I, I did take the uh, white bird, which is actually a leucistic bird. So it, it genetically doesn't produce melanin in the feathers, which is why the beard's black and the head's normal color, the legs are normal color. So it's actually called, referred to as leucism. It's not albino in any way. Um, the bad part of it is, I got a really good taxidermist to do a really good job on a minute, really cost an arm and a leg, but I got my wife talked into it and it sits here in the office and people call them butterball and make fun of them. But, uh, it was, you know, there are leucistic birds that pop up Western North Carolina is kind of known for that to pop up. In fact, the landowner I was hunting with, he had harvested a leucistic bird about 10 years ago, looked identical to it, but it was, it was really exciting. And uh, I, I catch a lot of abuse here at headquarters about my white Turkey, which is why I keep it there. 
Well, we we typically well we ask our guests for a couple of photos at the end of the show that we use and we put out our promos. And so I think we need to include one with the white turkey if you don't mind. Because I think absolutely. People would, yeah, people I got like one of the white it. turkey and my favorite turkey dog Tucker. So I'll get you that one. Oh yeah, we're gonna get the Tucker here. We're gonna get the Tucker before we're done. But uh, hey, I want to ask you. You alluded to this early on. You said about you know deer. More or less, what you said was that deer really stir the drink when it comes to state wildlife management, and that's what you hear mostly about. So, just explain to people who really, I, th- I really think that most people don't understand the depth and breadth of what goes on in a state wildlife agency. You're kind of looked at as a you pick the state, right? And every every state has what this perceived big dark building with no windows, and nobody knows what happens in there. Um, explain to people listening, really, maybe just elaborate on how deer really are such an influence, and also just some of the challenges you have in in dealing with that. Whether it just be just whether it be hunting regulations, chronic wasting disease, just how do you navigate all that? Yeah, you know, deer are the driver in Pennsylvania as it is in most states. You know, without white-tailed deer, hunting wouldn't wouldn't be anything like we know it today. Um, it's such an important species for hunting, especially here in Pennsylvania. Now, Pennsylvania, because of our geography, is very interesting in that we're not so far north that we really get the real severe winters that can actually um, have an impact on deer populations. And, and we're and we're sitting there with pretty good soils. So we're really at a really good sweet spot within the United States for white-tailed deer, and they do very well here in Pennsylvania. Of course, the challenge with deer is being able to make sure they have enough food. You look down in the southeastern United States, where your growing season is much longer, and the impact to habitats and the availability of forage for deer can be not as much as an issue as it is here in Pennsylvania, where we have a shorter growing season. So that's the real challenge for Pennsylvania is this, this combination of healthy deer and healthy habitats. If you don't have the healthy habitats, healthy habitats merely means, do I have enough food out there to actually physically feed these deer? The other side of it is deer herbivory can actually impact habitats where um, other species, rough grouse, even wild turkeys and others, you know, cannot do as well because you remove that cover and that cover is really critical. So managing deer in Pennsylvania, especially when you look at Pennsylvania, we're, we're, the, we're only number two in license sales behind Texas. So we have almost a million hunters in this state. We put a lot of work into research and management on deer to make sure we're trying to hit our harvest goals, uh, to make sure we're trying to balance as best we can uh, between healthy habitat and healthy deer. And then you throw into the mix the most wonderful disease in the world, CWD. And that I'm being as bad as, I refer to it as career wasting disease as well. Mm. It's a horrid disease that, you know, is in Pennsylvania. It, It will always be in Pennsylvania. All the best we can do as an agency is is keep that prevalence rate down as low as we can and and, lim- and slow the spread of this disease throughout the Commonwealth. Um, so CWD and disease is really an issue um, uh, with with Pennsylvania. We don't have it everywhere in Pennsylvania. It's limited to certain parts of Pennsylvania, and we have a response plan that uh, is is ongoing and we continue to work on this disease. But it's a very high priority because white-tailed deer are such a high priority here in Pennsylvania. You, uh, I've always felt like you have just the ideal personality and maybe sense of humor (laughs) to run a state wildlife agency. Uh, I know that you take it very seriously, but you also, 
you do things that I think a lot of others aren't or haven't been willing to do. So for example, one of the things I know you did was you went right into the hotbed of where the CWD controversy was a couple of years ago and sat down and met with locals uh, to hear their thoughts. I thought that was great leadership on your part. And I think that's translated into the PA Game Commission being a, a national leader, especially on CWD uh, and the information you produced being applicable all across the country. So just a little bit about what drives you to, to take on that type of leadership skill to not be afraid to stick your neck out and get in there and how you think that's translated into your agency being such a leader. I think my management philosophy has always been and it's been molded by some great leaders I've really had the opportunity to work with and been influenced by is, is kind of the statement that if you take care of the people, the people will take care of the mission. So what I mean by that is whether you're staff or you're a hunter, if you take care of them the best you can, they'll take care of the mission part of the agency's work. At the end of the day, this is all about people. And everything we do as an agency is more about people and, and, and less about wildlife. Obviously, we have management goals and wildlife management goals to reach, but we can't do that without the support of both the hunters and the staff. So that's where I've always, from a leadership philosophy standpoint, is really focused on people. Number one, I like people. Um, people are a lot of fun, but the, without the people behind what you're doing, you're never going to achieve your goals. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, we kind of hit the pause button and rolled up our sleeves and, and got right to the heart of the areas where CWD was. And, you know, we need to be there to answer the hard questions and answer the questions and, and learn more about their perspectives and how they see things because it, without those different perspectives, you know, there's never one true way to do anything. And you need to look at different perspectives to come up with a strategy that is going to be successful to implement. You could have a strategy that's absolutely bulletproof, but if you don't have support from the public, you're never going to achieve those goals. So, there's a lot of give and take and a lot of talking with the public to understand what their concerns, desires, and, and needs are. Yeah, amen to that. We always talk about the political science being more important than even the biological science, because if you don't have the people, you don't have anything. So Brian, I'm going to jump in here with a question for you, and it kind of relates to your past experience. It seems to me, listening to you tell your stories and what your experiences are is that, you know, you don't pick easy fights to get involved in. I mean, you came from the American Chestnut Foundation, and that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. But um, tell us maybe a little bit about your work there first and how that transitioned into you taking on such a like a big job with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, because that American Chestnut Foundation, some of the things they're doing now is no easy task either. It isn't, you know, and it, 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 there's kind of a neat parallel there, you know, to jump from the plate of the American chestnut into some of the disease issues, because it's not only CWD we're dealing with in Pennsylvania, it's also white nose syndrome in bats and West Nile virus, and there's a lot of disease issues we're dealing with. But the American chestnut work, the American chestnuts uh, is a nonprofit whose mission is to restore the American chestnut back through its range. And they use the science-based program, uh, real focused on both a back cross breeding program, which is your, what you would refer to as more traditional plant breeding, um, where you have genes from the Chinese chestnut, which is, has resistance to the chestnut blight, which is a fungus, and cross that with American trees. And then some of the other work they were working with, State University of New York, working with actually 
transgenic genes or putting genes specifically from wheat into the genome um, where the tree is basically almost entirely an American chestnut, but it's got that gene in there um, that helps with resistance to the chestnut blight. And it's a very difficult, challenging scientific problem to overcome. And what I find is interesting about the work that the American Chestnut Foundation is the work that they're doing also crosses over to other tree diseases that we're dealing with as well, whether it be emerald ash borer or woolly adelgid and hemlocks. So there's a lot of groundbreaking work that that organization has done and continues to do um, to look at forest health and tree health and bringing back a species that was so important in Pennsylvania and throughout the Eastern United States in many parts of the country. I mean, they had chestnuts down in Alabama uh, in, the, in the Appalachian region of that state. And the chestnut's an interesting story because it's been gone for so long that most of us have forgotten how important, how important to wildlife and people it was. I mean, this was a wood that was very strong, but it was very light and it could be worked very well. It produced mass that was, you know, 10 times what a white oak would produce um, and, and a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of fat. So very healthy and good for wildlife. And this was, you know, in Pennsylvania, we were basically a state line to state line filled with chestnut here in, in Pennsylvania. In fact, when I'm out hiking on the Appalachian Trail, you know, I would need a counter to count the number of native chestnuts that are still trying to grow from rootstock that may be three, four, five plus hundred years old. So it's, it's an ongoing work that the American chestnut's doing to restore that important species back to where it belongs um, to benefit people and wildlife. What's interesting now I'm thrown from which is often the depressing story of the American chestnut to the depressing story of diseases that we face in wildlife. You know, we talk about CWD and, and the dangers it has to our deer and deer hunting, but there's also West Nile virus that is impacting our rough grouse populations. And we're doing a lot of work with habitat work. And we've done some research to figure out, okay, well, West Nile virus is, is spread by mosquitoes that are infecting the, West, the uh, rough grouse but these mosquitoes aren't distributed across the landscape equally. And can we look for areas where the mosquito may not be as prevalent to focus our habitat work? So that's some of the great work the agency has been doing to look at how can we hang on to and grow uh, rough grouse populations in Pennsylvania using the best available science we have. You look at West Nile virus or white nose syndrome in bats, which for our cave dwelling bats meant, you know, it, basically got rid of 95% of them. This is an absolutely devastating disease to our bat populations. And as we talked about all these disease issues, one of the things that I'm most proud of what the agency's done to deal with wildlife disease, because wildlife disease was something that many agencies, you know, deal with the best they can. And our board supported staff developing a relationship with the University of Pennsylvania uh, to develop the, the, the uh, wildlife Futures Program, which is a very science-based program um, at University of Pennsylvania to really put wildlife disease and how we manage wildlife disease right up in the forefront. So I'm really, really so proud of the agency and the board of directors, the way they have supported that effort is not an inexpensive effort by any, any stretch of the imagination. But in wildlife management, nothing is inexpensive. If you weren't really going to want to move that needle, you're going to have to make the appropriate investments to actually move that needle. So you know, going from the depressing issues of the American chestnut over to some of the depressing issues. I don't know why I keep throwing myself into that bucket, but I just end up being there. So, but, but these issues with disease, wildlife disease and tree diseases, you know, we're a global economy and we're always moving stuff around. And anytime you move stuff around, you know, that's where you're going to run into problems. So for example, the chestnut blight came from Asia 
you know, where the trees were resistant for thousands and thousands of years, you dump that very powerful pathogen around the American chestnut who has never experienced this before. And within decades, it's gone. So it's, it's very devastating. Yeah, it's, uh, that's where the, I was talking about leadership earlier. Things like the, the Wildlife Futures Program are a prime example of that. Um, being focused on the negative, which can be a depressing job, but I, I kind of look at it the other way. And that is, you know, leadership is easy when you're out in front. Uh, it's hard whenever you actually have to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. And uh, you, you all are doing that in spades. And I know we certainly, as, uh, as Pennsylvania sportsmen here, we appreciate it. But this isn't just about Pennsylvania. I'm speaking, no matter where you're listening to this show from, we have the fortune of working with state wildlife directors all across the country. And a lot of them are just like Brian here. These are, these are really good people who have wildlife and uh, hunters' interest in mind, first and foremost. So this is my little plea, I guess, to give these folks a break sometimes. You don't realize just how hard uh, these folks are working for our best interest and for the best interest of wildlife. I do want to mention, too, that I happen to live on Chestnut Street, and the doctor there is a housewarming gift. He bought me a chestnut tree, which is growing in my backyard. So he's all in. Very nice. I didn't buy it. I grew that from a seed for you, oh, in case you're wondering. That's, I'm sorry. Yes, that's true. Boy. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about wildlife agencies amongst the public, unfortunately. Um, you know, we're a government agency, and there's, there's always that fact there. But there's, you know, when you look at wildlife agencies across the country with the, the uh, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we're these cold bureaucracies that, you know, just do our work enforcing laws. But when you really get to know the wildlife agency, um, these are passionate people. And I don't care if you're talking about Pennsylvania Game Commission or Virginia or Florida. These people work for these agencies because they're passionate about conservation. They're passionate about hunting. They're passionate about angling. And the, the passion really goes, ripples through these agencies. And, you know, the passion I see in the employees of the Pennsylvania Game Commission and other agencies I work with. I mean, these people are second to none. You know, they could go work elsewhere and do very, very well, but they're very passionate about the work a state wildlife agency does. And the conservation work a state agency does is so critical. I mean, our whole model of wildlife management is based upon, you know, having an, a government agency that basically works on behalf of the public at, to protect that public trust, which is the wildlife in this country. So, you know, these agencies are not cold, um, working in a black box, government agencies. These are very passionate, talented, skilled individuals that are giving their every day, all day for the benefit of conservation and wildlife. So Brian, since this is, this show has a bigger reach than Pennsylvania, give us one story where the Pennsylvania Game Commission under your charge has had a either a, a positive story, a feel-good story that has occurred by either you sharing like in regards, like the, the agency itself sharing information outside other states where you've made an impact or outside of other agencies. And then give me what your hope would be moving forward in regards to, you know, working with agencies and sharing to better wildlife and wildlife habitat. The agencies all communicate with each other through the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So that built, creates a tremendous platform for interaction and collaboration amongst agencies right there in itself. But I can give you some very specific examples. For example, I talked earlier about 
how we're using science to target areas of where we can do management for, for rough grouse and minimize the impact that West Nile disease is having on those populations. And this is information that we've shared with many other uh, states that are struggling with rough grouse populations as well. And these states have taken this program or starting to implement it where they can um, and to benefit of rough grouse. And it's just a good example of that collaboration that occurs within the agencies. And in fact, you know, as our grouse biologist, you know, developed this program, she was in constant collaboration with state agency grouse biologists across the country. You know, we don't do this in a black box and we collaborate. It's part of our business. It's how we operate. We're, we're very collaborative in how we approach this. You know, another example is when CWD with CWD in Pennsylvania, we did a basically a ban on taking deer out of the state or allowing deer into the state. We work with our neighboring states to send letters to each other's hunters to let them know that, hey, you can no longer do this because we we want to do everything we can to make sure people understand what the law is so they don't break the law. You know, we're not in business to try to catch people to break the law and get them that aha moment. We want to make because most hunters, I mean, the vast majority, almost all of them want to abide by the law. They understand the importance of the regulations that are in place. We've just got to continually do the best job we can to make sure that they're aware of these regulations so they can abide by them. So, you know, there's a lot of collaboration amongst these state wildlife agencies. I just, we just had a meeting last week, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and they are just tremendous learning and sharing opportunities that all helps us all do a better job. And at the end of the day, it's one of, if I could say one thing about all the state wildlife agencies, we are all passionate about what we do. We come to work every day and conservation is number one in our minds. Well, I will have to say, you mentioned your your grouse biologist, and uh, I'll give her a shout out. That's Lisa Williams. She's a rock star. Uh, we've, we've spoken to her, and um, you know I have a ton of respect for her. She is amazing, and she's actually taken over our diversity program now, so she's been promoted. Really excited about what she's going to bring to that program and grow um, a lot of the non-game species and all the challenges that we have with species of greatest conservation needs, so She's just an amazing talent that, and again, just another example of the, the, the quality employees that this agency has. I mean, literally I'm humbled every day I come to this agency and to work and I'm humbled by the staff that are around me, both here in headquarters and throughout the state, uh, from our game wardens, to our biologists, to our foresters, to our engineers, to our habitat management crews. These are truly remarkable people. So this is a tough question, Brian, it's, but I want to ask it because I'm curious with your background and all that you've seen and done to this point in your career, what are you proudest of? Oh, I, I think, you know, that's a good question. To be honest with you, I've been so fortunate and so blessed with so many opportunities that have come my way. Um, you know, I think back to my National Wild Turkey Federation days where I had a chance to go to Mexico and trap Gould's turkeys for, to bring those back to the United States for restoration of uh, Gould's wild turkey. You know, I think back to my early days of working in the forestry community and working through farm bill programs and how can we get more farm bill programs targeted at um, private forest landowners, and we were successful at, at getting some language in the farm bill that identifies non-industrial private forest landowners as, you know, sources of funding to improve habitat for equip and whatnot. I think back to, you know, the opportunities I had at the Chestnut Foundation to bring, you know, to work with an amazing group of scientists and board of directors that 
are making a difference and making steps towards being able to restore the American chestnut. You know, my life has been filled with so many blessings and so many good things that I am so grateful for the amount of the leaders I've had a chance to work with, like, you know, Rob Keck at the National Wild Turkey Federation, you know, my colleagues at other state wildlife agencies, you know, some of the many staff that I've had to work with here. I've just been so fortunate one after another of just, you know, I don't know why I've been had a gold brick drop on me so many times, but I'm so humbled and grateful for all the opportunities. You know, I the things I'm probably the most proud of is just the relationships I've been able to build in, in this conservation community and, and watch how this conservation community continues to thrive. You know, when we look at today, we're really living in the golden days of wildlife management right now. It's better than it's ever been. And, um, you know, that's really an exciting place to be. Yet, no doubt, we have tremendous challenges that face us. But I'm very confident in the skills that, that you know, these wildlife biologists and other professionals have to, to deal with these in the best way we can. It's a wonderful answer. Yeah, I mean, it's really enjoyed that perspective and uh, makes a ton of sense. Uh, so we have a rule here, Brian. If, if there's a dog question, dog-related question to be asked, it has to be asked by the doctor. And so sometimes this becomes like the dog and deer or dog and coffee and dog show. Uh, we're gonna, so we'll let him ask the, the dog question here and just keeping with our own rules of order. So, um, Brian, let's, let's talk turkey dogs. Um, I own a piece of property up in New York and hunting turkeys with dogs in the fall was where I first actually discovered that that as a means of of breaking up a flock and harvesting turkey so let's talk tucker here for a second okay it's gonna be a two-hour conversation let's go <laughs> we can edit this by the way i mean this, you know so tucker ah oh, gosh you know i first had a chance to hunt turkeys with dogs with actually jt burn which is the breeder of the dog i have the burn appalachian turkey dog probably about two decades ago. And we hunted in the mountains of Virginia. I did not get a bird, but we worked birds all day long. Dogs got in there, broke up the birds, dogs, put the dogs in the bag. They go to sleep. They're happy as can be. And you call these turkeys, these fall flocks back together. Never got anything close enough for a shot. I had one shot and I can remember JT sitting behind me, probably about 30 yards behind me. And the bird was just out there at about 55 yards. And he's like, I don't think he could tell how far the bird was from me. He's like, shoot, shoot. And I wouldn't shoot. I wouldn't shoot. Finally, I looked back at him. I said, he's too far and I'm not taking a shot, but had such a remarkable day. You know, and I, I made a promise to myself that day. If I ever got back to Pennsylvania, I was going to get a turkey dog. And I came back to Pennsylvania in 2014. Um, in about six months, I got my name put on the waiting list uh, for a, a burn Appalachian turkey dog, which is a mix between a pointer setter and plot hound. And about four and a half, five years later, I got a call that, hey, there's a dog if you want it. So, and the rest is history. And he's been, you know, I've had several dogs in my life and I've never been as close to a dog as I have this dog. And uh, it's been, you know, I haven't harvested a lot of turkeys with him, but we've broken up a lot of turkeys and we've had a great time. And it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm excited for you. I think that, uh, you're going to have to keep me updated on how Tucker's doing. I will. Absolutely. He's uh he does hog up all the bed though. I have approximately six inches in my bed that I'm allowed <laughs> to sleep in and he gets the rest. Oh, that's just standard dog behavior. 
Yeah, that sounds like a very happy and spoiled dog and spoiled owner. Uh, Brian, we, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective as a state wildlife agency director here. And obviously we had some fun along the way too. Uh, you talked about influence a lot and um, that's something that's important to me as well. And you have certainly been an influence on me in my career. So I appreciate your uh, mentorship and the fact that you also have run a nonprofit conservation group. You and I, uh, we share, we, we know each, we can speak each other's language, I guess is the way to we know how it. hard the job is and it's, you know, small, the smaller the nonprofit, the harder it is. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be honored and so honored to be on the board. I'm so excited where, uh, where the, where the national deer Association's going. I mean, the quality of your staff is just second to none. Um, and just, it, it's just, I've been on several boards before and this is the one I can say, I am just so excited and, and having a really good time. And, and I know we've got a, committee conference call coming up here really soon with Lauren. I'm looking forward to it. Great things happening. Um, and so excited to work with you on this. Well, it's a labor of love and we're, we're certainly glad you're part of it. So thanks again for being on Brian. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Sounds good. And again, so excited to have met the docs. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. The two bald guys, right. But he's the most popular. I just, I'm going to just admit it. And I just have to live with it. everyone's excited to meet the doctor. It's like, I'm just in the way of this thing. So <laughs> there you have it. As promised, Mike, that was fun. That was informative. Our state wildlife agencies, they, they deal with a ton. And I know it's easy for people to point fingers at them and be frustrated with them. Um, but I, as I said, as we were introducing Brian, I think his demeanor, his outlook, his optimism makes him great for the job. Uh, he loves his job, and I think that came through in the interview. Well, and that's the way it is with anybody. I was excited to meet him. He is just a very, very energetic personality. And to be able to sit in that role and be that positive and be that outgoing, I think, is is definitely a plus for him. And in, in the state of Pennsylvania, and I know we want to, you know, this is more national national reach, but as you said, when you put people in, in that role that can deal with some tough questions and some tough issues and people that are, that could be a little bit upset about deer disease or something along those lines, it helps when the individual has a vested interest, they're, they're a approachable individual and they're, they're very personable. I think that's, that's all pluses. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've been in state wildlife agency meetings and states all across this country. And while each state is unique, they also are very similar in terms of sportsmen and women are very passionate. And so, um, you know, it's almost like referees in sports. Sometimes you get a flag thrown and even though you should have gotten the flag, you're still mad at the person that threw it. And I think that happens a lot with our state agencies. And um, I thought that Brian represented that well. We'll have to have a uh, someone from maybe a, a western state, a western state, and a northern, a more northern state, and a southern state to round it out and just get their different perspectives. But I thought that was a really good and fun discussion. And you know, he's probably the only state wildlife director in the history of wildlife management that has shot a white turkey. So that's pretty cool too. Well, and the fact that he believes turkey and deer in cahoots. I mean, he's, he's got some interesting theories. I don't know if that's backed up with science, but I guess it's a theory and that's research always starts off with a hypothesis or a theory. So there you go. So we'll have maybe the game commission start to research that. 
Oh, it's definitely not backed by science, but I can tell you when you're sitting there and you're tired and you've gotten, you've, you've hunted several days of turkey hunting in a row and you know that feeling you start to get, and then a deer once again ruins your setup, you fully believe that it is 100% fact that they're working together. So that was the situation we found ourselves in earlier this year. Hunting plans, Mike, I'm, I'm really sad to say I've only been out one day. I think you've only been out one day since our season opened. Now, part of it for me is my business schedule has been very busy. Uh, you're also very busy. We have to improve on this quickly. Well, it's just like anything else. I mean, my, my real job pays the bills. And so when midterm practical lab practicals pop up, that takes, you know, a good handful of hours to prep that, but I'm still struggling with that new bow. Uh, I just, it's not tuning as nicely as I like. So I had, I just ordered a bow press today to get that thing in, to start working on it myself, because I find that when I do it my way, I think everything seems to work. So, um, I, as you said, I was out on Saturday, I got to go to New York, which was always exciting to go to my, my place and hunt. And I would put on a stock with my recurve on this doe and I had her within 10 yards. And then for some strange reason, a good friend of mine happened to text me and wish me luck when there was like no wind blowing and dead silent. She was 10 yards away and all of a sudden picked me right out and took off like a scalded dog. So, um, that's, that was my luck right there. That's well, B team. I'll just say two things there. Uh, number one, I'm in cahoots with the deer up there. And so <laughs> our job is to make sure you don't get one, uh, turn your vibration off on your phone. That's why I don't text you back for, for long stretches sometimes, because I don't, I don't know you texted me. Uh, and I can't, I don't remember the third thing because I'm old and remembering things is harder for me, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> Yeah. My apologies for that. Um, yeah. My, oh, my first, right. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get over it. Yeah. It won't be the last time we've messed each other up, but, um, I, I enjoyed my one day that I got out. I got out opening day, uh, morning and evening. I saw deer both times in the evening. It was really fun to watch deer come out and feeding in, uh, the food plot. One of my food plots that just a year before was just an old overgrown field that didn't really have much value to deer at all. So that was very satisfying. I didn't get a shot. Um, they were in range for a longer range shot, but I, I really, I was waiting for a chip shot and just, just enjoying watching them. So it was great. And I'm um, looking forward to getting out here uh, again, very soon, even though it's been a little bit warm, I'm going to stick to Lindsay's uh, rules that we talked about in his, in his article. Don't be so focused on that. Uh, deer, deer can move at any time and, and evidenced by that, our friend Bo Martonic, who we had uh, as a guest on the show recently arrowed uh, just a magnificent mountain buck in the mountains of Pennsylvania. It's one that he had shared some pictures with us of, and he'd been after for a while. And so congratulations, Bo, hope you're listening. And uh, I think his next show, the East meets West podcast, he's going to feature the story about that buck. And then our friend, Josh Honeycutt, who we've had also on the show as a guest had just posted a, on his Instagram, a number of great bucks and some stories behind them that have fallen already this year and in very warm temperatures uh, around the country. So um, let's not sit here and use weather as an excuse. Now, obviously if, it, if it's raining, I'm not a big fan of hunting too much archery in the rain, but uh, let's not use warmer temperatures and as an excuse not to get out in the deer woods. People are shooting some really nice deer. And so we just need to get after it. I can tell you last night at the event I was at, uh, my buddy, Jim Inglis, who's with Pheasants Forever, another partner organization of NDA, 
he's in Ohio and he was showing me a trail camera picture. And so if, if you don't live in a Midwestern state, you'll understand the frustration here. He's like, Oh, here's a decent one here. I'm getting on camera, which is like 150 some inch deer. <laughs> and so you're hunting these mountainous uh, Northeastern states in particular, like we do. Uh, our four-year-old bucks don't look like their four-year-old bucks. And so I'm a little bit jealous and I'm not going to ask Jim for trail camera pictures again, anytime soon. Folks, next show, we're going to be talking rut strategy. So I'm going to tease it a little. We haven't done this in the past, but we're going to be talking rut hunting strategy. Our next show will hit right before Halloween. And so it'll be a great time to be talking about them. I'm not going to reveal who our guest is going to be, but we're going to be talking about rut hunting strategy, which I know is really the Super Bowl of uh, hunting season for a lot of us. So looking forward to doing that. And I hope you enjoyed today's show as well. I hope you're getting a chance to get out there and uh, get a little hunting in, spending time outdoors and introducing others to the outdoors in particular, if you're able to do that. As a reminder, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to our show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. And I can tell you a whole bunch of other places because I was trying to look at some of the metrics and, and reviews of our show, and it comes up just about anywhere you can get a podcast. We're showing up. Uh, you can also very simply go to deerassociation.com slash podcast. You can subscribe from there. You can also subscribe to Deer Season 365, which is our other show, and all of our How to Hunt Deer podcasts have now been dropped. So you can check those out. For more information about NDA, please visit our website at deerassociation.com. You can become a member, sign up for the newsletter like we talked about earlier, and you can also enjoy all of our endless content on matters related to wild deer conservation, habitat, hunting, and conservation policy. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We are not on TikTok yet, <laughs> so, uh, which is where a lot of people seem to be. We do not have a TikTok account. Uh, but at any rate, maybe someday. Thanks again for listening, folks. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for getting us those ratings like you have been. We've got a number rolling in, and we do read those, and we do appreciate the feedback. So please do that if you haven't already. Good luck out there. National Deer Association, where we are, united for deer. <laughs>